Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I'm Natalie Rodriguez, and joining me for this week's episode is special guest host and Law360's research and data editor, Jackie Bell. Hey, Jackie, thanks for joining us. Hi, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for asking me. I'm so excited. You do um, all of the big data stuff for Law360 and Law360 Pulse, and I know you've been covering uh the Supreme Court, essentially, from a data perspective um, for Law360 Pulse's new Quartz Wire um, on a weekly basis. So I'm excited to kind of drill down on just some of the things that you've been noticing, um, you know, over the last few weeks uh, from oral arguments, which just ended recently. Uh, But before that, I think we have to talk about this week, which has been, frankly, a heck of a week. (laughs) It was a big week. (laughs) There There was a lot of things for us to count this week. On the Supreme Court. Yes. So so on Monday, the court delivered four opinions, right? Four opinions. And that brings us to 29 opinions out of the 58 argued cases, uh, as long as we're talking about counting things. So, <laughs> so that means we're exactly at the halfway point in terms of the number of decisions that the justices are expected to hand down this term. I feel like we should be farther along. It personally. feels like it's a lot has happened and we should be much farther along, but we're only halfway. So there's a lot. And, still and to we come. only have a few more weeks, really, if you think about <laughs> it, before you expect that the, the court. Hopefully to, like, they are be- very shop. busy at the court right now. Um, I'm sure they are writing all these opinions. <laughs> well, speaking of busy, I, I don't think we can get to all four of the opinions uh, this week uh, in terms of breaking them down. Um, but I think the one that really stood out for me was the decision limiting new trials for non-unanimous convictions. Um, this came down in a case known as Edwards v. Vinoy. Uh, it's a, it was a 6-3 vote where the justices basically said that defendants whose appeals ran out um, cannot take advantage of the court's ruling from last term uh, that said convictions by non-unanimous juries are unconstitutional. So, you know, many might recall last term, there was this huge case known as Ramos v. Louisiana, where the court held that the Sixth Amendment's requirement of unanimous juries applies to the states as well, not just to to federal decisions. Uh, The decision spurred a lot of hope for many previously convicted in the states of Louisiana and Oregon, which had until recently allowed for non-unanimous unanimous verdicts. They were really the only only two states to do so. Um, That, you know, that those convicted in those states might get a second shot. But Monday's decision denied automatic new trials. Uh, The opinion written by Kavanaugh affirmed a Fifth Circuit decision and basically said, you know, it's a well-settled doctrine that when the court lays out a new criminal procedural rule, it doesn't necessarily apply retroactively. Um, So, you know, this spurred a strong dissent from Kagan, who really attacked the view as you know, judging a scorekeeping, you know, and how it wasn't in line with the intent of Ramos. I think it's, I think I would love to just jump in here and say that, you know, Justice Kagan is not a frequent author of dissents. Um, Just by way of comparison, last term, she wrote only one. Um, I mean, this dissent in this case uh, is really her first in an argued case this term. Um, I mean, you know, as That's you know, huge. Natalie, she this is kind of a big deal. And she's usually not this pointed. You know, she's not one of the justices where we really expect to see like a fiery dissent. Um, she's really known as someone on the court who has a reputation of being someone who can build bridges. Right. You know, she had that reputation before when she was dean of Harvard Law. You know, she kind of built that throughout her career. Um but but this really pointed dissent, which we, you know, in this case, and we've seen, you know, some some of this, a hint of this earlier in some of the COVID restriction orders, 
Mm -hmm. Um, On the shadow docket, she had kind of a back and forth with the chief justice that was a little bit pointed. Um, So so it's it's interesting. It's like an interesting new pattern that you sort of have to wonder, is this kind of a new a new role for Kagan? Yeah, although I think she kind of got a a taste of that pointed conversation medicine in in, in some in some ways with this opinion. Um, So so she did only write one dissent last term, but um, that didn't necessarily she she also joined other dissents. And one of the dissents she joined last term was actually in Ramos, uh, where she dissented to the majority opinion out of respect for precedent. Uh, She had joined uh, Justice Alito and and Justice Roberts on that one. And Kavanaugh in 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 this week's uh, opinion pointedly called her out on that. It was, you know, saying it's another thing altogether to dissent in Ramos and then to turn around and impugn today's majority for supposedly shortchanging criminal defendants. Um, So that was a a bit of like, you know, drama woven into, you know, Monday's uh, opinions. Um, But, you know, looking more broadly, you're right. This Kagan is not known for kind of standing out as a, big dissenter um and is known as a bridge builder you know we're only halfway through the opinions though so are do you think we should expect to see more from Kagan this term in terms of that role I think it'll be interesting to see I mean we have 29 (laughs) opinions left to come there's certainly going to be opportunities for her so we'll have to see if she takes them it's worth mentioning, uh, too, that the case drew two concurrences, uh, one from Thomas and one from Gorsuch. Uh, Jackie, I think you you also had a point. Uh, yeah. Kind of so on, on, that on at least on the Th- Thomas account, you know, one of the things we do is, is obviously count how many concurrences and dissents uh, that we see from the justices. And Thomas seems to find every opportunity he can to write separately. So <laughs> even if he agrees with the majority, he will... Um, often write a concurrence. Um, I feel like I've noticed that trend. <laughs> yes. uh, so he and Sotomayor are sort of both in that camp. I mean, uh, if you're counting both concurrences or dissent, right, any opportunity to write separately. Um, Thomas is up to seven separate opinions uh, so far, and Sotomayor is right there with him. So they're really sort of two sides, opposite sides of the spectrum here. So, you know, maybe that sort of reflects or sort of where we are with this court. I, I, I like to see who who ends up winning that final tally. Uh, yeah, at the end of the term, <laughs> there's certainly going to be more opportunities. We have a, we have yeah. a long way to go. So that was big news, obviously. Uh, but I think, without a doubt, the biggest news of the week was this huge abortion rights case that the court took up on Monday. Um, that many are looking at as a potential vehicle for overturning Roe v. Wade. Um, this case, it's known as Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization, um, and it's essentially a, a review of um, Mississippi's ban on most abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy. Uh, the Fifth Circuit has invalidated this rule uh, based on Supreme Court precedent on Roe v. Wade, you know, which um, essentially says, you know, you you have a constitutional right to abortion pre-viability. And so the review that the court is taking up with Dobbs is, you know, whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. And this sets us up for, you know, I think essentially the biggest abortion rights showdown we've seen in decades. Yeah, this I think this uh, is likely to be the biggest we've seen in a generation. Um I think our way into this on the data team is that, you know, we're always looking for patterns and clues. Um, And I think on the Supreme Court, 
where so much is removed from view and we don't really know what the justices are thinking or what their internal processes are like. That's kind of sometimes the only window we have into what's going on there. So so one of the a couple of things I was thinking about this week um, is just kind of looking at the docket and some past experience and cases. And and you guys know I like to count things. <laughs> so so here's some of the counts I'm looking at in this case. Um I was looking at the conferences. So the court really took its time figuring out what to do with this case. So, you know, we were all watching it on the docket. They had it on the list of cases they were considering at their closed door conference. They rescheduled it a bunch of times. But then, at least apparently what we can tell from kind of the signals on the docket, uh, they reviewed the case at 13 consecutive conferences before they finally agreed to take it up. You know, that's unusual. That's not something they do with every case. So I think... Yeah, I was reading uh, our health reporter Jeff Overly's story on the on the case, and and he he pointed out that you know this had actually been lined up for I think review days before the passing of Justice Ginsburg, and and so it's been you know obviously on their minds and on you know their discussion table as you said for so so long, um, you know, it, 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 and you have to wonder what was kind of the final push, really, to take it up, and and now of course the question is what did they do here. I think one of the things we are also doing is uh, vote counting, <laughs> trying to anticipate. Um, Which has changed dramatically with the addition of Justice Barrett. Right. So so our uh, guesswork in terms of counting, I think, is a little different this term, obviously, with cases like this, um, especially when it comes to figuring out why, why they decided to take up cert. We often count to four because that's usually mm-hmm. the amount of justices they need to at least they need at least that many justices to agree to take up a case, um, according to the court's kind of internal habits. Um, so I think it's pretty clear, at least from the June medical case, the most recent abortion-related case the court heard last term, and, and kind of looking at the dissents in that case, you know, Justice Alito, Justice Thomas, probably Gorsuch too, were almost certainly yes votes uh, for taking up Dobbs. I mean, I think Justice Barrett, in terms of what we know about her, um, is pretty sure bet for a yes vote in taking up this case. Um, I think the for the other conservative justices, Justice Kavanaugh and the Chief Justice, um, they're probably the only question marks. Um, you know, in last year's June medical case, John Roberts has actually side actually went with the the liberal wing um, and was kind of the pivotal vote. Uh, against a Louisiana abortion law because it conflicted with a precedent the court had set just the term before, right, in whole women's yeah. health. Um, so he's definitely going to be one of the justices both sides will be working on when they when oral arguments <laughs> are finally scheduled in this case. I think Justice Kavanaugh will probably also be a target since his how far he's willing to go down this path, I think, is still a little unclear to most observers. Yeah, as you said, I think that the arguments are going to be very pointedly directed at those two justices and, you know, the kind of arguments that appeal to them, right? Um, Now, I think the other, you know, question here is Justice Breyer, because he's authored a lot of the the most recent majority opinions, right? Women's Health, June Medical. It's hard not to wonder what he's thinking right now. Um, You know, he, he wrote the decisions in both of those cases, um, the majority opinions. Uh, if you reach back into the court's history, there are others where he's kind of brought the court together. Um, 
I mean, but the court's obviously very different now. And, you know, with the current balance of the court with six conservative justices and only three, you know, I think it's an open question of whether that experience and skill set of kind of, you know, being able to be in the middle um, is going to be relevant. I mean, but he might think it is. And so I don't know. It might be it might have an effect on what he's thinking about retiring. I think it's hard to tell. I mean, (laughs) I will say, I think, you know, I love counting the Supreme Court and I love sort of speculating about all this stuff. I mean, they always manage to surprise us. So, you know, all we have here are some clues. Yeah, we I I feel like Jimmy and I have been discussing this before. And like, I keep going back and forth. Like at first, I was like, yeah, all this evidence seems and clues seem to point towards potentially retirement. And now I'm all on like, he's not retiring. It's not happening. <laughs> you guys should this start a all- pool. You guys should start an office pool. <laughs> uh, I, we yeah. should. That's that's a good idea. We should. Um, yeah, but it's all crystal ball gazing, right? Yeah. Uh, at least for <laughs> yes. now. Um, okay, so obviously big case to watch. I, I I have to say, I think this is going to be the case to watch essentially next term. Um, I, I, it's definitely going to be the one. I feel comfortable making on. that bet. Right. Yes. <laughs> and it's also, we're probably going to get a decision on it right in late May, early June of next term, which is, you so know, we'll be, we'll be revisiting this exactly a year from now. Yes. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I think that wraps us up for this week. Um, but Jackie, since you're here, I have to pick your brain, uh, you know, for for what you've been kind of seeing in terms of top line stats from oral arguments, which just wrapped up. Um, we've played the number game before. Uh, what are some numbers you can throw at us today? So what, one of the things um, we've been getting really into this term is just uh, diving into the oral arguments and just counting as many things as we can and trying to <laughs> see what that illuminates. Um, So one of the things we track is kind of questions or remarks made by the justices during each oral argument and just things like, how long are they? How many words do they use to get to the point? Um, And one of the interesting things for me this term was just who rose to the top of that list. You know, one of the one of the ones we do often is just average words per argument. You know, how much did they typically talk during an oral argument? And this was a weird term, right? This was a term when everything was on conference call. Uh, you know, no one was And everyone's live. got a set time, right? And everyone's got a set time. And the chief justice is, you know, really like trying to keep track of everybody, making sure everyone has the same amount of time, which is really different than how they usually roll. So, uh, you know, so when we've done this argument in the past, you know, Justice Breyer, the unchallenged king of the winding <laughs> hypothetical, you know, he's dominated these lists. He takes a lot of time with questions. Um, he often has like a long story to tell before he gets to, you know, what he really wants to ask. So, um, you know, he's been on top of this list for a while when we've done this count. But but this term, he was actually moved off of that perch by Justice Barrett. Um, he just joined the court in November. You know, we haven't had a lot of experience with her oral argument style. But she actually racked up more words per oral argument than any other justice this term. I feel like I'm really surprised by that because she's actually been fairly concise in her opinions, like relatively yeah. so anyway, or at least, you know, I haven't done the data and like, you know, crunched the numbers, but at least that's been kind of like my, you know, take just looking at looking at things. Yeah, no, I think I think that's true. And, and I think, you know, you see that also in her questions in the sense that she asks very precise, very detailed questions 
but they're kind they're kind of long as a result. Like she's very prepared. She's got the statute. She's got the page number. She's got the specific footnote oh, she wants details. to ask okay. you about. Um, yeah, it's a lot of detail. Um, you know, she she often kind of like lays out all of her thinking about a case. You know, for the advocate. You know, here here's where I'm at. You know, here's what I'm thinking about. Here's the you know, every little piece that I'm thinking about, can you respond to this? Um, so that was kind of an interesting pattern we were watching. You know, we're just learning a lot about Justice Barrett uh, and just kind of getting to know her and her oral argument style and how she interacts with with the other justices. So, you know, that was kind of an exciting pattern that came out of that. Let's see if that, let's counting, see if that particular counting exercise. Let's see if she she continues to to. Uh, to kind of dethrone Justice Breyer or if yes. they'll get into like a hypothetical <laughs> easy match feat. next term. We'll yeah. see. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, so what else have you noticed about the justices in terms of kind of their their speaking patterns or, or you know, just general oral argument activity? So I think, you know, Justice Kagan was also pretty high on the list of average words for oral argument this term. Um, she even beat out Justice Breyer by a teeny bit, but she... If you look at some of the other metrics in there, you know, Justice Kagan and Justice Barrett use their time really differently. Um, You know, uh, everyone, especially this term, I think everyone had to kind of figure out what they were doing beforehand. You know, they couldn't just jump in and have it be kind of a melee the way they usually do. Um, Which I miss a little. I know. I think, you know, I think there are trade-offs, right? Like, I've really enjoyed listening live. You know, I think that's been such a treat. Yeah. But, you know, I think it, it has really interrupted the court's normal pattern. Um, but, you know, for example, Justice Barrett, she prepares by, you know, she has a specific question she wants to get out. She wants to get all the details out. Um, Justice Kagan just asks more questions and shorter questions. And so she's really trying to drive to a specific result, I think. Um, there are a few sort of dramatic examples from this term of Justice Kagan kind of deploying a almost like a firing squad questioning style on some of the advocates, sort of like, I'm going to ask you a series of questions and you say yes or no, right? Um, it's hard to imagine did she, did what it's Did she really like. do that? I, I actually don't recall those, but <laughs> I believe I, you. But I can you imagine being the advocate? And I be can, like, yeah, I think that... Get prepared. <laughs> I'm sure, like, you know, these Supreme Court advocates uh, that she tried this on are pretty experienced. So I'm sure they were, you know, ready for this in some way. But... Um, you know, I think, you know, we saw this in the, like the cussing cheerleader case recently, you know, where she was like, you know, I'm trying to figure out what's school speech and what's not school speech. How about this example? Is this school speech? Yes or no? <laughs> you know, <laughs> let's try to classify this. And, you know, she's always sort of driving towards a point. Um, but I think it does have the effect of kind of racking up her word count per or argument because she's like, you know, these rapid fire questions. So it's just kind of a different style, but it gets you to the same high word count. Um, okay, so who's who's at the bottom? I, I think I can guess. I think that's but... worth mentioning. You can probably guess. Uh, I'm sure it won't surprise you that Justice Thomas was at the bottom of the list in terms of average number of words spoken at oral argument and average number of questions for oral argument and average number of words per question. So he's on the bottom of all of those lists. Although um, he's normally like, sometimes he's been at zero, right? For I mean, most he famously years. said nothing at oral arguments for years, right? <laughs> so... That's not that surprising. Um, maybe it's more surprising we did hear from him. This- I mean, these are like these have to be like all time highs, essentially, yes. <laughs> for him, I would imagine, for, for any term. 
I mean, even, I think, even though he's still at the bottom of the, the list in terms of loquaciousness. Yes, I think I think from a data teams from the data team's perspective, it was great to have something to count <laughs> um, <laughs> from Justice Thomas at oral argument this term. So we're, we're never happier than when we have something to count and we have some data um, that we can use later. So, um, you know, that's just some of some of the stuff we're digging into. We're going to have more on this later this term. But I hope that kind of gives you a little taste of what we're what we're digging into with oral arguments. Yes, this has been great, and I can't wait to kind of see some of the final data crunching that you have uh, at the end of this term, whenever that might be, that they (laughs) finally get through all these uh, opinions that they have to get through. Um, Jackie, it has been wonderful chatting with you. Thank you so much for kind of talking us through uh, all these data points. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We'd like to thank our producer and editor, Stephen Trader, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. We'd also like to thank our special guest, Jackie Bell, and contributing reporter, Jeff Overly. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, please go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening.